0: I think we can dismiss our younger children to Children's Church. I do have a few announcements. For you today before we get started. Um, the, uh, the Women's Thursday Morning Bible Study will meet this coming week. I think in the announcements we sent out, it said it was not going to meet, but it will meet. So... Um, If you're going, plan on going this Thursday. And you see we have our uh, Christmas dinner at uh, Idalee on the 16th. That's only in two weeks, so you'll want to have that on your calendar. And uh, this coming Saturday is Parents' Night Out. There's still plenty of room if you'd like to uh, sign up or sign your kids up so you could have a night out. Uh, That would be a great thing. And then... um, There's a note in in your bulletin about uh, board games to donate and those sort of things. We are having our Christmas Eve candlelight communion service this year, so you'll want to plan on that. And Communicants class is meeting today. This is our last uh, full class, and um, they had a handout assignment that they need to bring back to me today. So if you forgot about that, You have about an hour after church before we meet to get that taken care of. So I also have handouts. So I need some folks to help me hand these out. Every year I ask them to send me one of these, and this year I got two cases. So I'm going to give them to you. So there's enough for one for every family here. Come back and get more if you need them. pass those out. That'd be great. And as it is Advent, we have Advent calendars. These are for our uh, younger children, but we're going to give these to parents. So I'll need some folks to help me hand these out. I guess I should have opened them first. I didn't realize they were packaged. So, there's only 30 of them because we counted up all the families with younger children that would want these advent calendars. So, um, you know, I'm going to let you make that decision. I don't know. (laughs) But I think it pretty much covers at least everybody that has elementary school age. But then we have some extras, so if you want more, I have some more down here. If you have more kids or somebody's not here, here, I'm going to let you take that. Can you open that? There we go. I think we got it. I'm open challenged this morning. There we go. And I do have some extras, uh, smaller ones that if you have other kids that you'd like to give them to, uh, or you need to prevent major sibling rivalry issues, uh, something like that. We have extra ones. Also on the back table, we handed these out last week, is a family Advent devotional. And if you didn't get one, uh, they're in the back, encourage you. There's also some extra children's Advent devotionals, and they're on the table in the hall. So help yourself to those. I hope that's all of my announcements. If you'd like more Shepherds' Guides, they're here. You can help yourself. And I think that covers all of my announcements this morning, or at least I'm hoping. So get out your sermon outline. It says, Christ's Prayer for His Disciples on it. This is the 60th Sermon. but I was looking up uh, on John 17 this week and uh, looking at at, uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones is a great preacher from the last uh, century. And on this passage we're covering today, he preached 48 sermons. There's only 14 verses here. So, I'll let you do the math. So, actually, you know, just getting to 60, we're doing good. We're like way ahead of schedule. So, John chapter 17, starting at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. This is Jesus who's talking here. He's the I. The you is God. He's praying. And so this is part of what we call as high priestly prayer. He says, yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. Heavenly Father, we read this prayer and it's confusing and difficult and we're not completely sure what Jesus is saying here. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to apply and obey your word that we might leave this morning knowing you better. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the most urgent need in the church of the Western world today? It's a question that uh, the scholar Don Carson, D.A. Carson, he poses at the beginning of his book a call to spiritual reformation. And I thought it was a good question to ask at the beginning of Advent. What is the most urgent need in the church, particularly in the West today? <coughs> you could come up with many answers for that. Uh, one might be, is it a need for purity, particularly in sexual matters, in a culture obsessed with sex at almost every turn? Is it integrity and generosity in the financial arena? We suffer from the raw worship of mammon. And in our day, it's become so bold, so outrageous, so pervasive, (coughs) particularly in the last 25 years. There are many people willing to do almost anything, including sacrificing our children, provided that we can buy more. Maybe it's the uh, urgent need is for more evangelism and church growth. Careful studies have shown that the increase in church attendance is accompanied by no increase, measurable increase in holiness. Maybe the most urgent need is disciplined biblical thinking, strong biblical scholarship, when many students and faculty in seminaries and colleges and universities have an extraordinarily shallow knowledge of God in spite of all their academic work. And Don Carson doesn't belittle any of these needs. He says they're all needs, but there's a sense in which all of these urgent needs are merely symptomatic of a far more serious lack. He says these are just symptoms of the problem. These aren't the root problem. He says the one thing that we most urgently need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. And he thinks that we have, particularly in the church, become so good at other things that we've forgotten, for example, how to pray. (laughs) He says, we have learned how to organize, build institutions, publish books, insert ourselves into the media, develop strategies, administer programs, but we have forgotten how to pray. <coughs> Excuse me. Did kill it. He cites a... Uh, survey done several years ago at a seminary, an evangelical seminary here in America, 50 students going overseas for ministry. So they interviewed them all as part of the survey to, for their suitability, were they ready to go? And out of these 50 students, only three of them could testify to regular times of reading the Bible in prayer. Perhaps you assume that pastors and missionaries are the models, and I'm afraid in many cases you would be shocked. J.I. Packer writes about his own pilgrimage and prayer. He says, I believe prayer is the measure of the man spiritually in a way that nothing else is, so that how we pray is as an important a question that we can ever face. And Don Carson's aim in his book is to see our prayer life transformed, and through that, our experiential knowledge of God deepened. And he says, the main reforming power to bring this about is the Word of God. There's a good biblical reason for that. It's the same reason we find back in John chapter 15, verse 7. Jesus said to his disciples you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And you have a connection there between prayer and word. now the church has been debating the world for hundreds of years. And it's apparent that there is a lot of people who don't believe or argument that Christianity can change their life. But when they see someone whose life has been changed because they place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then they're confronted with an unanswerable argument that Christ does, in fact, change lives. But if our lives haven't been changed, or our life or our lifestyle doesn't demonstrate change, if there is no discernible difference between how we live, how we think, how we act, how we treat others then those other people aren't being confronted with much of an argument for Christ at all, are they? In fact, the lack of a changed life is an effective argument against putting your faith in Christ. Someone says they're a Christian, but you can't uh, discern any noticeable difference between them and anybody else. Why should I believe what you believe? And I think one of the main reasons so many people who profess faith in Christ but don't live in accordance with their profession is because they spend so little time getting to know Jesus. And so as we come to this passage today, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, I want you to keep asking yourself this question as we go through this. Is my life an argument for or against having faith in Jesus Christ? Is my life an argument for or against having faith in Jesus Christ? Well, we start by seeing that Jesus identifies with his disciples. He identifies with them. We start reading John 17. We notice one thing right away. This is really the Lord's Prayer. That other prayer he taught us to say is probably better called the Disciples' Prayer. It's a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. But now we see a prayer that Jesus himself prays. And Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Soon he'll be returning to God the Father by way of a desperately shameful and painful death. And with the shadow of the cross hanging over him, Jesus does two things in his prayer. And the first thing he does is he identifies with his disciples before God the Father. He identifies with them by their obedience. Look at verse 6. That's the first blank you should have, by their obedience. It says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. It's important to realize that the followers of Christ at that time were obedient men. Their obedience to Christ stood out compared to the disobedience of the world. They were God's men. They had been chosen for this important work of establishing Christ's church on earth. And it was only through obedience, only through keeping God's word that they would be able to carry this out. And so when you ask yourself, is my life an argument for or against having faith in Jesus Christ, you need to consider the issue of obedience to God's Word. Does your obedience stand out compared to the disobedience of the world? Does your obedience to God's Word enable you to work uh, in and for Christ's church? Romans eight thirty four says, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, is indeed, who indeed is interceding for us. And we see that Jesus is still coming before God the Father on our behalf. And is he able to say about you, Father, I can identify with my disciples down there at Potomac Hills in Leesburg. You gave her to me and she has obeyed your word. You gave him to me, and he has obeyed your word. Jesus identifies with those disciples who keep God's word. He also identifies with his disciples by their knowledge. By their knowledge. Verse 7. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. All the way back in verse 3, John seventeen three, he said, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, there's no eternal life apart from personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, as Rich taught us last week. It's not enough to know about Jesus. You must know Jesus as you know your friends. I don't know Billy Graham. I know about Billy Graham. But I don't know him. I've never sat down and talked with him. I've never shared my life with him. I've never prayed with him. And yet there are people in the church today who are under this illusion that they can know Christ without having a relationship with Him. They never talk with Him. They never share their life with Him. They never pray. They never listen to what He has to tell them. And it just doesn't work that way. To know God, to really know God, is a transforming experience. If we come to know God, we can never be the same old sinful person we used to be. To know God is... Is life. We read in our responsive reading this morning that Christ is the source of your life. You can look at that in your bulletin. To know God is life. Knowledge of God, knowledge gained through relationship, doesn't bring life, it is life. Obedience, knowledge, and third, Jesus identifies with his disciples by their reception. By their reception, verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. Come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. The disciples may not have always understood God's word, but they became so attached to Jesus that they received his words as the true revelation from God. And once they received them, they worked to fully understand them. And yet many times today, so many times, we do things just the opposite. We insist on being able to fully understand a passage of Scripture before we'll accept it. And we certainly won't obey it. We won't do what it says until after we're sure that we, that we understand it completely. And yet the disciples accepted God's word from Jesus because they first accepted Jesus. Once that relationship with Christ had been established, then they were free to accept what Jesus had said. And if you don't have that kind of relationship with Christ, if you aren't accepting the words that Jesus said, then there's no way you can be obedient to that word. Obedience depends on having a relationship with Christ and accepting what he said. Is my life an argument for or against having faith in Jesus Christ? And ultimately, it boils down to one thing. What is Jesus looking for from his people? What is he looking for from you? What does Jesus give you that enables him to identify with you? And he wants to identify with his disciples by their belief. By their belief. That's the next blank there. Again, verse 8. He says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Obviously, we're focusing in on key words this morning. Jesus identified with his disciples because of the belief the disciples placed in him, a belief that Ephesians 2 tells us is a gift from God. And isn't that the bottom line? Do you or do you not believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus actually did what the Bible says he did? Do you believe that Jesus actually said the things that the Bible records he said? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name? John 20:21, 20, that's the theme verse of this whole gospel. There is no obedience, no knowledge, no relationship, no reception, no acceptance without faith, without belief. And ultimately, this is how Jesus will identify his disciples. Father, these are my disciples. Look at them. See their faith. And Jesus identifies with his disciples by their obedience, by their knowledge, by the reception of his word, and by faith. And if Jesus identifies with you as one of his followers... What is he doing today to bring about change in your life? This passage is telling us that he's doing what he wants us to do. Which means that Jesus intercedes for his disciples. Now, interceding, intercession is just a a big church word for praying. Praying. And once Jesus has identified with his disciples before God the Father, then he intercedes for them. He goes before the Lord in prayer on behalf of his followers. And first he prays for their protection. For their protection. See, once you've sided with Jesus, then you've also sided against the world. Once you've declared that you're going to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're telling the world that you're no longer going to follow their ways. In a very real sense, you've made a declaration of war. I was talking with someone about this this week and said something to the effect of, when we commit to Christ, when we commit to prayer, when we commit to being in the Word of God, we're declaring war against Satan. And that thought's come back to me again and again since that uh, conversation. I think anytime we side with God as opposed to the world, we're declaring war. Anytime we side with God as opposed to the flesh, we're declaring war. Anytime we side with God as opposed to uh, the devil, we're declaring war. And when we gather together on Sunday morning to worship God, we're declaring to the world that our God reigns. Beloved, to the world, that's a declaration of war. And if we're going to go into battle, we need some protection. And nothing less than the armor of God and the power of God will be adequate for this fight. Jesus understands all this far better than you and I ever will. And so he prays to the Father for our protection. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Verse 12, I kept them in your name. I have guarded them. Verse 15, keep them from the evil one. And this idea of protection sort of flows through his prayer. And it even covers all the other things he prays for. But he starts to get specific about what is he protecting them for. And so we see that he prays for their unity. Praise for their unity. Verse 11, that they may be one, even as we are one. And Jesus prays that we'll be protected from disunity. Nothing will defeat an army so quickly as when you're able to divide their forces. Break off their communications, interrupt their supply lines, use deception to distract them. You think Satan knew military tactics before the U.S. Army did? I think so. And unity is the first thing to be challenged. It's the first battlefield of the church. And therefore, Jesus prays that we'll be protected from division. We'll be protected from our failures to communicate. We'll be protected from our own ability to be supplied from God's Word. We'll be protected from deception and distraction. All those things that bring about uh, a division. And this is no small request. I think Jesus knew what was coming. I think Jesus knew that we would have churches breaking fellowship over the sacraments, over baptism, over doctrine. When I was interviewed for my first uh, pastoral job, one of the very first questions I was ever asked is, will you split the church? And a little too quickly, I answered, of course not. Then I had to go back to that question a little later and apologize. So there's two things that I will split this church over. The authority of God's word and the person and work of Jesus Christ. Some things are worth dividing over. Some things are worth fighting for. Some doctrines are too precious to let them go quietly. But I also think that Jesus knew we would have churches breaking fellowship over what color to paint the bathrooms, over what color carpet to buy, over what type of curtains to hang, and over stupid, silly nonsense that has nothing to do with making disciples. I read an article, True Story, happened in Iowa a number of years ago. Two small churches were going to merge. But they couldn't agree on how to say the Lord's Prayer. So they called it off. How did the local paper report that? Well, they reported that one church remained in their debts while the other church stayed with their trespasses. (laughs) I think the paper was right. Look at what Jesus is praying for here. He's praying that we'll have the same kind of unity that he has with the Father. When we look at the state of the church today, this is a prayer that should make us think long and hard about what we're doing to keep the unity that Christ gives us. Maybe we need to ask ourselves, is our church an argument for or against having faith in Jesus Christ? Third, he prays for their joy. He prays for their joy. This is an easy one. We like this one. The Lord prays we'll be protected from a lack of joy. He asks God, verse 13, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He's not asking God to give us some half-hearted, lame smile, but life-changing, abundant joy. He wants us to have his joy. And not only that, that his joy would be fulfilled in them. Jesus prays that we might be so overflowing with joy that the world can only sit up and take notice. That despite our circumstances, despite our difficult situations, despite our occasional failures, when it comes to joy, the church is the only game in town. Is that true? Is our church an argument for or against having faith? In Jesus Christ. And last but not least, Jesus prays for their holiness. He prays for their holiness. He asks God, verse 19, that they also may be sanctified in truth. To be sanctified means to be set apart, to be made holy, to be reserved for God. Sanctified people are people who've been set apart for service to God. And when someone's set apart for God and His purposes, then that person will be doing the things that please God. And at some basic level, that's what it means to be holy as God is holy. And Jesus is praying that we would be protected from unholiness. Holiness should be motivated by our unity and our joy as Christians. And when there is no unity and there is no joy, there's probably not much holiness in our life either. Now, we can come up with all sorts of reasons. We can come up with lots of explanations for a lack of holiness. We can impress ourselves with the difficulties that we face, the challenges that we have to tackle, our inability to do the things we would like to do. So we think we have pretty good excuses for lacking unity, joy, and holiness. But we need to keep in mind that God knows all about that. He knows what we're facing, and he still put us where we are. And he wouldn't put us in a situation where unity was impossible, where joy was impossible, where holiness was impossible. Because if we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has identified with us, and he's interceding with us, he is with us, and we are with him, and nothing is impossible for God. And so therefore, we have to ask, what are Jesus' intentions for his disciples? What are Jesus' intentions for his disciples? What does Jesus want for us? What are his intentions for his church today? Might they be related to things that allow him to identify with us? Things like obedience, knowledge, uh, acceptance, and belief? Might they be related to things that he thought were so important that he brought them before God in prayer? Things like unity and joy and holiness. Vernon Grounds was a uh, great Christian leader, past president at Denver Seminary, and he once said that when reading books which exhorted him to live the Christian life, he often found himself, after reading a particularly good point, uh, to write in the margin of the books the letters... Uh, Y-B-H. So off to the side he would write y, capital Y, capital B, capital H. And one time a friend was coming over to borrow some of his books, and he noticed a lot of his books had these letters written over and over again in the margins. So he asked Vernon, why do you write the letters Y-B-H in the margins of your books? What do they mean? And he looked at his friend and replied, yes, but How? Jesus prays that we might be sanctified and made holy. Vernon Grounds would not have to write YBH, yes, but how, in the margin of John 17. Because Jesus answers that question in verse 17. Jesus asked God to sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification, the process of being made holy, comes through what we call the means of grace. And while there are many, the means of grace generally refer to the Word of God and to prayer and the sacraments. And there's no shortcuts. If we're going to live the Christian life, if our lives, if our church is going to be an argument for having faith in Jesus Christ and not against having faith in Jesus Christ, then we're going to have to be known as people of the book. You may have tried, sought to obtain instant holiness. And I'm sorry to say, there is no such thing. We want somebody to give us three easy steps to holiness. Go to a Christian bookstore, any of them. Just start counting how many books that have you know, the three steps to this and the four keys to that and the seven vital ways for this and that. You know, you pull your hair out. Why are there so many of those books? Because people buy them. We would like three easy steps to holiness. We'll take them on Friday and then we'll be holy by Sunday. The trouble is holiness doesn't come that way. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.16. You should memorize actually verses 16 and 17. Great verses. We should all know them. Verse 16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That last item, training in righteousness, in righteousness. That's what the Scriptures, the Word of God, the Word of Truth, the Holy Bible will do for you if you use it. You need a disciplined intake of God's Word if you're going to live a life of holiness. You must hear the Word taught uh, from the pulpit and in Sunday school and in Bible studies. And it's going to be difficult to live the Christian life if you're not in church on Sunday. If you're not attending Sunday school regularly, you're just punishing yourself. You need to hear the Word regularly. You have to read the Word for yourself. It's going to be difficult to live the Christian life if you're not spending time reading God's Word. And reading the Scripture gives us the big picture, the overall perspective of God's truth. And you need to study God's Word need to study specific passages, enable us to dig more deeply into a particular truth. You know, the definition of a habit is simply a behavior acquired by frequent repetition. And we need to develop habits of holiness. And they're not going to come overnight just by frequent repetition. And being a person of the book is going to require that you hear the Word, that you read the Word, that you study the Word. And Jesus didn't ask God to, send us out in the world just to survive, but to thrive, to thrive as his followers, as his disciples. Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 2, verses 14 through 16, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast, to the word of life. And then if we really are going to be people of the book, then maybe we won't have to worry so much about the question, is my life an argument for or against having faith in Jesus Christ? Think about that. We need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, it's so easy to want holiness and so hard to direct our lives to move in that direction. It's easy to talk about obedience and receiving the word, but it's hard to actually obey. It's hard to find the time to open our Bibles. There are so many distractions. And Lord, we pray this morning that your Spirit would begin to work habits of holiness into our lives. That we wouldn't talk about prayer, that we would actually pray. That we wouldn't just talk about the Bible, but we would actually read it. And Father, we pray that you would use those means of grace along with the Lord's Supper, sacrament right before us, that you would use those to enable us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen.